Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hey, friends and foes. My guest today is Ricardo Karam, an established, a super well-established television presenter, producer, and currently the host of Tariq Al-Amal on Abu Dhabi TV. Welcome. My pleasure. So what is that show about? Well, this is among many other shows I'm currently producing and presenting. But this show in particular is very dear to my heart because throughout this show, I host uh, three different individuals who have faced an upheaval. And I try with them to see how they transformed this upheaval into a source of happiness. What kind of upheavals are we talking about? Any kind. It can be anything. Are you not going to tell us about those specific ones in, uh, in the show? It can be a, a physical upheaval. It can be a sickness, an okay. illness. It can be uh, a death in a family. It can be uh, a personal grief. It can be a broken heart. So many different aspects uh, are faced by so many people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you sit with those people and uh, you envy them. Yeah. You might see people who are handicapped and who are very happy. And you might see some people who have mutilation and they have this inner happiness, inner peace. Whereas sometimes you've got everything and you're not happy. So listen to them, look at them and be inspired. So this show is about inspiration. Those people are inspirational. So we'll definitely get back to that a little bit later, but you're also working on some other really cool projects. We just talked about how you're kind of juggling several projects at once, including uh, another TV series that investigates the world of kidnappers and the ransoms that the families of victims need to pay. Is that correct? This is one of the shows as well. Today in this part of the world, it has always been, but now even more and more, especially with the digital media and social media, which is instead of connecting, is opening eyes of so many people. And you've got uh, kidnappers all over and you've got transoms uh, all over that are being required. And I believe that media is not highlighting a lot on that. What's the name of that show? Do you uh, have a name yet? Al-Fidya. And for which uh, outlet? It is for Al-An TV. Okay. Uh, where is Al-An? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I'm sure everyone will want to watch it because it's a very interesting topic. Um, do you know anyone who's ever been kidnapped? I mean, why did you choose this subject? Personally, no, I don't know. Okay. Personally, I don't know. But I know that there is a lot of stories yeah. ongoing here and there, whether in Lebanon or in any part of the Middle East. And today with the uh, fundamentalists, yeah. today with the ISIS, today with the uh, uprising... Uh, Political currents and integrism, I think more and more people are kidnapped or are subject to be kidnapped. So are, is the show mostly focusing on Lebanon or is it all not over the all, Middle East? Yeah? It's all over the world, actually. Ah, so where is it uh, in the Middle East, let's say? Is there a, a part of the Iraq, Middle East where it's more? Yeah. Syria, mm -hmm. Yemen. So how do you find these stories? Uh, in that show, this is one of the few shows I do not produce. Mm. In a sense, I'm not involved into the writings, into the scripts, into the findings or the research. I'm only uh, the host and I do narrate 
those stories my own way. So you don't really meet the people or no, 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 no. interview the kidnappers. <laughs> this is you know, a lot. This is you know, a show that requires a lot of research. I can imagine. And I would have loved yes. to, but yeah. unfortunately, I've got so many projects at the same time. I cannot dedicate uh, more time than uh, what I do currently. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's certainly an interesting topic. Actually, when I first moved to Beirut, just to quickly tell you a story, I once thought I was being kidnapped. And um, it was a, actually, I called a taxi. It was four years ago. And, and the guy started talking about how, you know, people like to kidnap foreigners. Is that the case based on your experience in the show? Is it mostly foreigners? Like who's getting kidnapped? In your case, not only foreigners, beautiful foreigners. <laughs> well, you did say that, that, you know, they like blondes. So I got a little nervous and I didn't recognize the route. So I made him pull over and I jumped out of that taxi like I never jumped out before. But anyways, that's a funny story. But, but I imagine enough, this happens, right? It does. But really, really enough, in Lebanon, you don't have a lot of those stories. We have really a security in Lebanon. I like what we think. Mm. I like what people think. And as a matter of fact, You scarcely read about uh, uh, those stories in the papers and you hear of. Mm. Uh, at the same time, you might think that this is a society that is closed in many areas. Forget about Beirut and the urban part of Lebanon. If you go into the villages, if you go outside Beirut, uh, people uh, don't tend to open up and talk about uh, Uh, this, uh, those issues and those matters. It's a question of, uh, uh, it's a shame. Mm -hmm. And the word shame is uh, spread all over Lebanon and in many communities and many religious groups as well. Uh, this is something that should not be dwelled upon. So uh, this is why maybe we don't hear or listen or read about uh, uh, those stories. Hmm. But well, we'll hear about them on your show, I guess. When does the show come out? I have no idea. Okay. Well, we're no waiting idea. for it. Yeah. Keep us posted. You you also produce documentaries. You've produced seven, I think, to date, since 2006 at least. And one of them was uh, an interesting one that caught my eyes, uh, one about uh, Rafiq Hariri, mm -hmm. uh, where you interviewed his family members. It's been 15 years now since his assassination. Why did you do that documentary? And did you imagine, did you interview, first of all, all of the members of the family? Did you interview, for example, his sons, his daughter? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. It was actually one year after his assassination. I thought that would be a great idea. But was however, that your idea? Not all ideas can be applied and can become tangible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to do things, you want to do things, and you not succeed in making them a reality. And having all the family uh, opening up and talking to me wasn't uh, something easy. It was a quite impossible mission. But it happened. I had them all, uh, from uh, Mrs. Hariri to uh, uh, all the children, Saad, Baha, Ayman, Hind, uh, uh, Fahad, uh, and even the stepchildren, uh, Jumana and Uday. Wow. All of them were on the show, and all of them opened up and talked to me and it was so interesting uh, because the wound was so fresh and it was interesting to get them really talk about their feelings and uh, take out of them all their obsessions, all their grief. You know, I believe that some of them wanted, in a sense, to get revenge and some others know 
they said no. Mm. You know. Did you ask them that question yeah, specifically? Revenge would not bring our father back. Yeah. So this mix of different feelings was interesting to discover and to talk about and actually to feel. And this is, you know, what was the most interesting part of that documentary. Uh, some people made peace with themselves mm-hmm. and some others know. They all differ and they all think about it and look at it differently. Do you think they did get some level of revenge with uh, what happened in uh, the Cedar uh, Revolution? Revolution? I don't think it can ever bring their father back. Of course not. If you want to talk from a human perspective, I would say no. Mm-hmm. They can never embrace him. They can never tell him they love him. Right. They can never hug him. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that they would never feel from a perspective of a human being. From a perspective of a leading political family, they might think, yeah, that the obviously they're a political family. Change the whole mm-hmm. context in Lebanon or the political environment and background in Lebanon. And maybe if hadn't he died, nothing of that would have happened. So maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know what was going through their minds, but I can tell you from my own judgment or assessment, uh, this is what I've saw, or this is what I've seen. You also did another documentary in 2011 uh, with uh, Queen Noor Al Hussein of Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually the first time she ever granted an interview to an Arab uh, TV producer or host. Exactly, exactly. Actually, most of my guests have given me the interview for the first time. I was lucky enough to get exclusive interviews and scoops in that part of the world. I think I was the first one to decide to get out of the boundaries that were set and to fly. This is what happened to me in my journey. I left Lebanon and I wanted to invade the world and interview the biggest names. But finally... And there's quite a list of names, actually. We'll get to some of those other ones after. Yeah, who am I to do that? Who am I to do that? So we're going to go back, actually, 20 years ago to my beginnings. But before that, let me answer your question about Her Majesty Queen Noor. Yes, I was the first one to get that Wait, interview. Wait, did she approach you to interview her? Or, or, of course, you approached her? No, Queen Noor is approached by everybody. She doesn't need me and need a Lebanese TV station to be on. Maybe she really liked you. Uh, it would be you know, you had a, a nice it, track record of doing, you know, quality it work. It would be, you know, a compliment, a big compliment for yeah. me. I know, I, That's it not was what not the case. It took me some time actually okay. to get a yes from her. Amazing. Uh, however, it was the most difficult interview. And uh, how do we say it? Uh, this was the most cursed interview I've ever done or the most cursed work I have achieved. Uh, How so? Uh, yeah, everybody was fighting that interview and nobody wanted it to be aired. Starting from Why? Jordan, then to different parts of the Arab world. Did she say anything controversial? Not What's the at reason? all, not at all. They didn't want to give her visibility and they did not want her to be on a screen and they wanted people to forget her completely. Mm. And I think they have put their weight in many Arab countries to forbid that interview from becoming a reality. And it took me four years to be able to air it. I would love to watch that interview, actually. Because each time I was about to sign an agreement with a TV station to buy the project and to air it, not the curse, but Mm -hmm. a phone call Mm -hmm. was arriving. And that phone call 
was forbidding that TV station from speeding up and from going onward. So it shows how, how long the arms of certain regimes are in the region. This I is suppose. the Arab world. Yes. Don't forget. Yes. Forget about what you see. Mm. The format can be always nice and beautiful, but you go deep inside and you'll be shocked by reality. And Amman is interesting because they kind of... Uh, You know, they dance on both sides. They're not really on one side or really on the other. So it's kind of easy for them, I guess. They are. And this is why they're surviving. Yeah. Pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, the survival of the fittest. Yeah. In a very complex environment. It's interesting. Um, but you've interviewed lots of amazing people over the span of your career, including the Dalai Lama. Exactly. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. It was a difficult journey. Mm-hmm. It happened in Haramsala. And I had to fly through New Delhi. And it was the season of the uh, monsoon. Okay. And at that time, uh, we couldn't fly. So all the flights were canceled. There were no trips to take up there to Jammu Airport, as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had to, to drive from New Delhi to Dharamsala for 14 hours. Okay. And In a monsoon? Was it raining? It was raining heavily. It was too hot and driving Did you in have air conditioning? India, yeah, we had. <laughs> <laughs> driving in India wasn't easy. You know, I was about, I, I tried to, 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 to have a, yeah. to rent a private jet and to fly with my team. It was impossible. Mm -hmm. Nobody accepted actually to, to, to fly on that yeah. day. And I had the appointment already scheduled and set and an appointment or a meeting with Dalai Lama doesn't happen every day. So he said, we have no other choice. And you drove all night long. Wow. And we were singing I mean, but how, how, how is that possible that the Dalai Lama was like, yeah, let's do a show with this uh, Lebanese guy? It's quite uh, amazing. It's like as much as you said the other thing was cursed, in some ways these types of situations, it's quite the opposite. Does he give th whenever, that many interviews? Whenever you have a message, whenever you want to convey a message, yeah. and whenever you want the whole world to mm -hmm. listen to your cause and to hear about your struggle, every audience counts. And Middle Easterns count mm -hmm. and Arab people count. You've got hundreds of millions of people yeah. who live in that part of the world. And the Dalai Lama, who, uh, who has been fighting not only with China, but with many regimes, I think needs to be heard. So maybe this is the reason why mm -hmm. they said yes for that interview. But I think at the same time, I'm uh, perseverant and I'm quite insistent. Yeah, and that's important. in every interview I've done in my life, uh, I did not get the positive result on the spot. It took me some time and I worked too hard to make them a reality. Yeah, well, that's the key to success in a lot of things that people do. But um, what, what marked you most when you met the Dalai Lama? What do you remember about him? I remember very well the people running away from uh, Tibet and who were arriving to Dharamsala. And you can see them after days of running away, exhausted, tired. And whenever they were seeing him and kissing his hand, they were fainting, they were crying. And when you see them, you see how they look mm. and how they're facing that encounter and living the moment of approaching him, of touching him, you know, you cannot but cry. So for me, this is the, one of the nicest scenes and one of the nicest moments I witnessed in my life. He's a very inspiring figure, I guess, almost bigger than life, larger than life. 
in some ways. Listen, the, the interview, the problem is that interviews, you can evaluate them differently one year after the other. The moment I had them on my show, it was a moment of privilege, of course. And I remember I went out of the interview a new man. Hmm. The year after, I saw differently. Your old interviews, you cannot look at them from the same point of view. Yeah. Because you change. Your perceptions change. Right. The vision of things change. And I do change. So did you feel transformed? Is that what you're saying? After your interview in some ways? Transformed? No, this is a big word. Well, changed. Affected. Affected, yeah. Positively. That's a good one. That's amazing. I don't mm. want to belittle him because, of course, he's so inspiring. But a few weeks ago, Newsweek, Newsweek had a story on, um, you know, they had a quote from him basically saying uh, that a female successor must be attractive or people won't want to look at her face, which was actually obviously made fun of in the media by a lot of people. Um, it kind of was funny coming from him because he's such a, you know, a, a force of nature and usually he's so wise. And then also... You should know the person, you should meet yeah. him to understand that he has a lot of humor. Oh, so you think that was humor? And I remember very well that in half of that long interview, <laughs> really, yeah, uh, it, it was, you know, he was laughing all the time. And really? It was, you know, full of anecdotes and of jokes. And this is, you know, how he is. So you think you know, he was whenever being... Whenever uh, there is spirituality and philosophy and you want to talk about that, you need to approach things in an easy way. Yeah. And you need to have that uh, uh, easygoing approach. And I think if you wanted, or if he, he was meant to talk in a very deep way, masses wouldn't understand him. Mm -hmm. So for him to reach the highest number of people, I think he needs to make things easy and simplify them. Now that you put it that way. And maybe this is why he said what he said. And yeah, maybe he's... Uh... PR, like a marketing PR genius. And he knew that, you know, like maybe people weren't really paying attention too much. And he's like, let me say something that will really get people talking. You know, all the, all the leaders are marketing products. Yeah. Not one single leader, mm. even in the history. All of them, they, they were made by a big marketing team. Mm -hmm. Now we call them marketing. Long time ago, used to call them PR before PR. I don't know what they used to call them. But however, there is always Publicist? a group yeah. of people who know how to convey the image and who know how to project the image of the persona. And how to uh, create buzz, basically. Of course, yeah. of course. Jamal Abdel Nasser wouldn't have been Jamal Abdel Nasser if he had not have all these, uh, all this support over the media and uh, all those TV channels. Uh, filming him and airing his speeches, talking to people. He had the charisma, it's true, but media helped a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, you also interviewed Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Where did that happen? It happened in Riyadh. I had two choices. Of Even course, in Riyadh. Where else? <laughs> I had two <laughs> the choices. The Silicon Valley of the Middle East. Either, now. Either. Now? Not really. Not, no. no. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. In, maybe in uh, 2030. No, maybe before. <laughs> maybe even before. Yeah. I had two, uh, two different choices, two different options, either to go to uh, Seattle and make the interview happen over there. Of course, going to his own background, to his own context, to his own environment would have been more interesting. Right. However, I did not want to jeopardize the opportunity of getting him. Mm -hmm. He is somebody difficult to get and he's not well outspoken. Mm -hmm. 
Although he's well read. Well spoken, you mean? Not outspoken. Yeah. He does not open up easily. Yes. Uh, Melinda is much better his wife. Right. They said, well, you can have him for 25 minutes or we can have a 40 minutes in Seattle a couple of months after. Mm. I said, no, I'll do him now. You should have said I want both. To, to, to be definitely, <laughs> I, I know, I know. No, in life you cannot, you cannot have everything. Whatever you know you do That's in life. That's just an interview with Bill no, Gates, always, not everything. You always need you know, <laughs> to, to pick yeah. the right option. Okay. And life teaches you mm-hmm. how to cope with uh, changes and how to grab opportunities. It was an opportunity and I grabbed it and I got it. And what, what did he talk about in that interview? Philanthropy. This mm. is, you know, his yeah. uh, topic, favorite topic. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, you know, the most important thing about that interview was that I discovered that the richest man in the world can be normal. We can see people here in the, in the Arab world yeah. who got money and who do not know how to show that money. Sometimes I go to New York, to DC, to Aspen, and I see some Arabs who are flying there and who've got hundreds of people with them. Yeah, I've heard of those planes landing in New York. And you see Bill Gates and his private jet with a little group with him, three, mm-hmm. four people. You see him driving, going to Starbucks in Seattle with his children, with his wife, going to a restaurant, having a normal life. Mm-hmm. You know, this is when normal people are. But th- when you interviewed him, what made you... Uh, think that he's like a normal guy. His approach, mm-hmm. his clothes, his yeah. watch. What was he wearing? What kind of watch was he wearing? A Do you Rolex, remember? A very simple Rolex. Okay. Mm-hmm. His suit, normal one. Yeah. Two assistants, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The richest man yeah. on this planet. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you don't have to listen to him. You need to follow what he does. When you see what Bill Gates is doing to humanity, to poor people, the people who are suffering from malaria in Africa, and other diseases, you cannot but bow to that. Because that guy could be spending a beautiful time with his family, mm-hmm. friends, enjoying, dancing, drinking. Yeah. And look who he is now. And the only motto in life is to serve the community and to give back to community. Do you think he's really making making like a, a real difference in those places with his projects? What do you think? You know, I saved millions. I, I know, I know that you usually host your own shows, but I asked you the question. <laughs> this is a public knowledge; everybody yeah. knows it. But I mean, you know, like c- compared to other organizations, there's lots of organizations that are doing projects. What I mean, not a real difference, but a significant difference, more than others, considering that he's the wealthiest man in the world and that he's so powerful. Is it is it more impactful, say, than other? Um, I think that Warren Buffett and Bill mm-hmm. Gates. Uh, have done not only significant change, they changed the whole concept of philanthropy worldwide. Mm. See, that's an interesting point. Those are real models, Mm -hmm. real models we all look up at. We all look up at and we all hope uh, to approach one of those days if God grants us what they were granted. Right. Well, we've talked a lot about the public figures you've interviewed, but a lot of your shows also tells, you know, as you talked about in the beginning, you, you like to tell the stories of regular people. 
you know, you did a show also back in 2011, I think, after the uh, Iraqi war, the Gulf War, where you, or the Iraqi war, sorry, uh, where you interviewed Iraqis from around the world, exactly. the diaspora, um, about their successes, because I guess, you know, they were kind of uh, portrayed in the media. It was just a sad story. And it, I guess it was nice to portray successful, happy, positive stories of Iraqis. Exactly. I've, I've picked 26 Iraqis living abroad, living in different parts of the world from different fields and I wanted uh, to compile those people to bring them all together and uh, people to like in sci scientists medical political philanthropy like all kinds of different fields right in the world of art culture I remember you know I've hosted a lady called Nada Shabut Nada is working has been working tirelessly for the past 10 years to restore all the antiquities and all the art pieces that were stolen and that were robbed Amazing. from the museums yeah. of Iraq. Well, not the stealing part, but... Uh, a remarkable <laughs> yeah. lady yeah. Know, went to, to, to meet... Painstaking uh, work. Zaha, you know, one of the, I think one of the most important Arab women the world Zaha has Hadid. known. Yeah. yeah. I went to meet... Uh, I love... Rafa Jazirji, another mm. great architect. Mm. And uh, one that I believe equals what Zaha did. And actually Zaha in her show, she attacked him. And she finds that what he does does not apply to today's reality. Mm. Whereas himself criticizes as well Zaha Hadid. It was interesting. And I met so many Iraqis. Listen, I believe Levantines and communities of the Levant are spread. And today you see Syrian people scattered. You see Palestinians with no homeland. You see Lebanese scattered all over the world, migrating, leaving their country. And there is a lot of similarities between Iraqis, Lebanese, Syrians, Palestinians. They left and their strength is within a lobby they can constitute. And I wanted to be an initiator of that lobby. This is why I had a lot of Palestinians who live here and there. They were remarkable. Hmm. They have no land. Yeah. They have no passport, but they have their successes. And why do you think that is? What is it about people from that region, that group of countries? Maybe, maybe there is a part in their genes. Because you're right. I mean, if you go to Mexico or South America, a lot of the most successful people are from this part of the world. Listen, the First World War made people leave at the beginning of uh, the previous century. They left, they settled. They went in boats and they settled in those parts of the world. Mm -hmm. They had nothing and they brought their families one after the other. And they had no other choice than succeeding. You think that when you need to survive, right? You need to make it happen. Yeah, there is nobody you can count on, and difficulties shape us. They make us. They transform us. Mm -hmm. And those biggest success stories you're talking about or you're referring to, whether in Uruguay and Mexico and Buenos Aires and uh, Sao Paulo, you know, they were made by Levantines, mm. Syrians, Lebanese, uh, Palestinians. They had no other choice than succeeding and and i love that i love challenges and i love people uh, who inspire me i need to be empowered 
I, I, I think we we have that in common. I think that's why I chose to be in media. It's kind of one of the rare, you know, professions where you have the opportunity to um, to, to appreciate other people's lives and. Um, you know, for a change, most people obsess about their own lives. It's one of the few professions where you can, you know, kind of focus on other people's lives and really get into it and be inspired. And, and there are so many inspiring stories. Um, you know, I had the opportunity of going into the commercial aspect of media. I had great offers to work into to work in the field of varieties, entertainment, yeah. to host singers and artists and do varieties. And this is something I've always refused. Mm. Why? First of all, it's not me. Then I wouldn't make any social impact on the others. My main motto was that social impact. So you're not an entertainer? Far from being that. I entertain people with interesting stories and with interesting content. I am for content. I don't care about tabloid. And if that person got married with the other and if they got divorced and if they're in love or no, it's not at all, at all what matters to me. Yeah. What matters to me is to be able to touch you, touch your heart, to empower you, to motivate you, to push you to go onward and forward. This is what matters to me. I chose a difficult path, but I'm happy that 20 years, almost 25 years after, uh, what I have planted or the seeds of what I planted started blossoming and I'm happy to see that today success is a title or is a field or is a state of mind everybody's trying to reach in every field today all the media in the Arab world you know they care about successful people yeah newspapers yeah magazines billboards talks conferences forums it's very they idealized bring, they all bring you know yeah those success stories. At the time, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, the first time I had a successful Lebanese, the TV station I used to work with said, you know, this is a loss of money. We'll not invest on that. And I insisted. Mm. And I recalled the first time I went outside Lebanon and I've interviewed Gabriel Yared, who had the Oscar for the English Patient soundtrack. And I aired the show. Isn't he on... performing at a festival? Uh... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. festival. I'm talking 1997, Yeah, a long time ago. And uh, it was aired on June 20, 21st, the, the Fête de la Musique, you know, the, the He's fiesta. a pianist, right? A composer plays the piano. Gabriel? Yeah. And he what plays on perform? different instruments. Yeah. He's a big composer. Yes. You know, The Cold Mountain, The English Patient, okay. Camille Claudel, all those big movies. Amazing, yeah. He made the music. And Troy and, you know. Wow. And got the Oscar for that. Yes. And it was, for the first time, a spot of hope, mm. a spot of light on the, on, 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 in the TV industry and on the TV scene in Lebanon. Interesting. And then I went further and I got Nicholas Hayek, the guy that founded Swatch Group. The Swatch watches, he was the one behind and he built an empire. And then I went and I got Hadid, and then I went and got Carlos Rosson, and all those people were not known at all by the public. It was a pure jeopardy for TV stations to invest on that kind of show. Today, all of them, you know, they want to have on their screens those successes. What's interesting is that the Middle East is known for having a very creative and enterprising population, you know, the, the number of people who are entrepreneurs and stuff. And Perhaps there's something 
about what you were doing in those days, those kinds of stories that kind of shape the minds of young people and make them believe that they can do that too. So it's it's a nice way to think about it, I guess, if that's your if that's what you're doing. 100%, yeah. Um, it's You're also quite passionate about shining light on some issues. Um, you're on the board of governors of, uh, how do you pronounce this, Amid East? No, I'm, I'm not you're at not all. anymore. I'm not, no, no, I'm not at all. You know, I was the keynote speaker in uh, in in Los Angeles. Oh, I see. You're not on the board. Okay. No, no, I was the keynote speaker, and it's about education. I'm 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 too much obsessed with education. I believe that education. Yeah, because that's an organization that uh, fights illiteracy in the yeah. Middle East. I think education can eradicate all this ignorance and the different political regimes in the Arab world. They have been working in the direction of keeping people completely ignorant. They want people to look only around them. Sure. To think only about the vital things, the primitive things, eating, sleeping, and watching TV. So you think that governments, a lot of governments in the Middle East, consciously try to maintain ignorance. How do they do that? Poverty. Mm -hmm. This is one. Media. Controlling the media. This is two. Not only that. You know, the content the media is conveying. There is no content mm -hmm. in most of the media, in most of the TV stations, in most of the uh, uh, newspapers and magazines. You go, you go to Egypt, Egypt, you know, yeah. thousands of years of civilizations and cultures. You've got remarkable people, but at the same time, you've got millions of people. You know, have 100 million people in Egypt. Mm. They do nothing, people. Yeah. They know nothing. They used to have a really good like entertainment industry, like cinemas, but I feel like it doesn't seem like they're not even active so much with no, this. The, the, the movie industry has changed a lot. <laughs> it's finished yeah. the era of, of what Fatan Hamama did with the big directors. You know, she was the first woman to claim and 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 to fight for the rights of women. 50 years, 50 years ago, mm. six years ago, in her movies when she was divorced, when she had kids to raise alone, uh, where women had no right at all. She was among the first fighters. Now the society has changed a lot, a lot. And the era has changed. And uh, movies are not impactful anymore. Mm. And actually, you've got no more viewers anymore. People watch soap operas. We are so much influenced by the Turkish uh, novellas. Yeah. Uh, we all air, they all air Turkish soap operas. So I would say you're right, definitely, when you're talking about, you know, the mass, the masses. But I think uh, there's a certain segment of society all over the world and in the Middle East that's shifting to uh, on-demand content, which is like a whole other story, which we'll discuss in a bit. Um, but um, you also founded Tekrim, an organization that recognizes also successful people uh, in the Middle East. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, Takrim is a foundation uh, that uh, saw the light in the year 2009. Mm -hmm. It was founded uh, consequently to my TV programs. As I've told you earlier, I was the first one to introduce and to feature in my shows uh, those uh, success stories who are not known. And I have felt and I have witnessed the interest people I've shown toward those shows. And I was always saying, well, those shows will come and go. I need to create something that would be sustainable. And I started thinking, what can I do 
that can sustain and remain and last. And Takrim was, was the project of my life. So I created that platform. So it's an organization that, that gathers all, yeah. successful people. You so basically year, go, you give year, awards, correct? Every year we work into spotting eight achievers yeah. from Arab origin. Do you f- look for them or they apply for the no, awards? I, if, if I can find, yes, I will propose. I will suggest yeah. names, of course. But the, uh, the mechanism of selection is very yes. complex mm-hmm. and difficult and tough. You've got two different phases. You've got hundreds of people involved in that. You've got the first board that represents all the Arab world. 90 people are involved in that board. For each category, you've got 10 people. Yeah. And they shortlist the names. Sometimes we have, uh, we've got 100 candidates per category. And after shortlisting wow. uh, three only remain. And then you've got the board, the jury board that... Uh, gathers in Europe, whether London or Paris, and for a whole day, uh, the board deliberates and decides who the winners are. So the board, is it mostly comprised of like mostly people from the Middle East? People from the Middle East, uh, most of them, of course, big names. Queen Noor al-Hussein, Lakhdar Ibrahimi, Queen Noor al-Hussein from Jordan, Lakhdar Ibrahimi from Algeria. Andrea Azoulay from Morocco. So every uh, every year Sheikha you do. Sheikh Sabah from Kuwait. Sheikh Ahmed Khalifa from oh, uh, Bahrain. So you're shining a light on on these people that are doing good things for the region. And do they end up getting more press as a result, and more attention, and more support? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's you good. Know, this is the objective: is give them yeah. visibility. Yeah. They're all unsung heroes. They don't like to talk about what they do. Yeah. And they've decided to work in silence. Mm-hmm. But you're here to beg them yeah. and to ask them, please, you need to be with us. That's you're kind remarkable. of a nice, a nice side effect Talk of to what people, you're doing. Yeah. Empower them. Definitely. They need hope. So I hear you're also getting into podcasting, interestingly enough. Um, I know, I think, was your first job um, in radio? Yeah. Your first job ever? Yeah. You were an intern at a station called Magic 102? Is I was 16 right? years old. I loved it. Yeah. What did you do there? I loved it. I was a radio broadcaster. And if you ask me what are the best years of your life, I would say definitely when I used to be a radio broadcaster. I loved it. How long did you do that? Uh, Four years. And what were you talking about on the radio? Like news? At that time, I was 16. I was... They let you you on the air at 16 years old? Yeah, my voice was not ready yet to be on air. And... uh, They were like, is that a a woman or is it a man? (laughs) This is not that, but you can see it it was a teenager talking. Yeah, that's so cute. I loved it. You know, I was so fond of music, spending all my pocket money buying LPs at that time. We had no CDs, don't forget. We were in the 80s, mid 80s. Yeah. And... um, Is that here in in, uh, Beirut? Yeah, in Beirut. Okay. 1987. Mm -hmm. I was so fond of uh, Madonna, Michael Jackson... uh, of course, Elton John is my favorite singer. Still? And, uh, still. And I used to talk about, you know, those singers, those bands, uh, the releases, the new songs. And it was my world. That's so. That's it such a nice story. Um, do you think podcasting is obviously super exciting right now all over the world? And it's kind of catching up here in the Middle East, which is probably why you're getting on it. But do you think that it's kind of 
we call it here a kind of radio 2.0. Do you think it's the rebirth of radio? Do you think do you think we've been so bombarded with visual content that there's this craving for audio which really allows you to focus on the information a little bit better. You're not distracted by two senses. You're only focusing on one sense and it kind of gives your imagination more room to work. When someone is telling a story, you're imagining you you kind of might feel more the story because you're imagining it and relating to it as opposed to being told what the story looks like when you're watching an image. What what do you think about that? Listen, till now I'm a big fan of radios and I do listen to radios uh, very often. BBC is, you know, one of my, of my favorite and I love radios. I love uh, using this sense and uh, not all my senses. I'm not a TV person. We do not watch TV very often, my wife and I. We read a lot. And whenever I don't read, I listen to radio. I love that. Uh, however, the podcast thing is something that was initiated by, by my team. They encouraged me to do it. Mm. And they convinced me. And then I met a wonderful uh, lady, Rea Shadid. And Rea is the one who pushed me, actually, and who convinced me. Well, I can't wait to hear it. It's going to be in Arabic? Yes. Okay. You were born in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Did you? Is that where you grow, grew up? No, not at all. I was only born. And I came back to Lebanon when I was a few months old. Where are you traveling to mostly? I do the state three times a year in Europe on a monthly basis and the Arab country on a weekly basis. What are you doing in the States, in Europe? I go and check on my bank accounts. Okay. Mm -hmm. That You really shouldn't have them there in the States. You should find like... You know, other places, Cayman Islands. <laughs> What? <laughs> They're all over, don't worry. They're all over, okay. I, I, re I remember, you know, I was interviewed not a long time ago by a Lebanese journalist. And he told me, they say you have a private jet and they say you've got uh, houses in Paris and London and you have a boat. And how come a journalist was able to build up what you built? I told yeah. him, you forgot, you know, I have a house in Beijing, another one in Costa Rica. Do you? And I have in Acapulco as well, you know, a beautiful mansion. And uh, I don't have a private jet. I've got two private jets. So I was kidding, of course, you know, with that guy, where other stories coming from. You had me I, going I, there I, for I, a second. I, I think, I, think <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been able to do what I do to achieve what I achieved. Hadn't I had the opportunity of traveling, of uh, not melting, but igniting those contacts With people abroad, with foundations, special individuals, all those friendships I have built were not built randomly. I worked yeah. at making them happen. I think that I was lucky enough to be able to spend time to sit with the laureates of Nobel Prize, with big writers, big journalists, big doctors. They shaped me, they made me who I am today. And this is an opportunity that does not happen to everyone. Yeah. I made it happen in a way, but at the same time, circumstances helped me in making this dream become a reality. Yeah. I know you're very busy. We were talking about that before the show that, you know, it's the kind of job that's super rewarding, but also very demanding. And, You know, you're always thinking about what you're going to do next and how you need to prepare. Um, but what do you do in your little spare time that you have? Do you, are you into sports? I am. I, I play tennis a couple of times a week. And I run. I've got my private trainer. How often do you run? 
two, three times a week. Okay. I ski okay. winter time. I read a lot. Yeah, that's that's a great sport I for the mind. Music. Yeah, that too. I love discovering uh, new restaurants worldwide mm-hmm. and new cuisines. And that's it. Then I have three kids. I take care of my kids and of my wife. And it needs time. Yeah. That's well-balanced. Uh, sounds like a well-balanced life. So um, I think our time is up. Thanks so much for coming on. It was my pleasure being with you. And by the way, for those who do not know you, you're a very pretty lady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Hey, give us just one more second of your time to like and comment on this episode. Don't forget to find us on hakawadi.com and follow us on themensroom.show. Hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby.